Grace in place of two of three. Convex, capital, collusion, and cash flow. One of the most fascinating aspects of America, at least to me, is its segregation. America on paper is one of the most diverse nations on the face of the planet. But that statement is a tad misleading, though. It's very well documented. There's still a considerable degree of residential segregation across communities in the United States. Now, that in and of itself isn't so bad. However, when you couple it with the staggering socioeconomic disparities across communities of different demographic profiles, you may start to take a bit more interest in the residential segregation. I find myself particularly, excuse me, particularly intrigued by the topic, um, albeit it's a bit more sociological in orientation than psychological. That and there's uh, a complex social web at work in America affecting both social structures uh, and the financial markets. We don't fully understand the intricacies of what that means and all the parties affected. There are a few things we have a better understanding of, though, so perhaps we can start with uh, some of that. Maybe some history first. Now, elephant in the room, slavery was practiced in America for uh, 245 years. From an economic perspective, slavery was critical to American economic development. European development as well, but let's focus on the former. The American South produced over half of the world's cotton by 1840. In fact, cotton represented over half of export earnings for the U.S. during that era. Uh, but we needed infrastructure to support all of that plantation, plantation activity. To that end, the North focused more on uh, business services and uh, insurance and textile factories and cotton brokerages and legal support, uh, banking, and the South would focus its resources on cotton growth. So the North would support the South uh, through business services. It worked very effectively and America benefited tremendously during that uh, during this time. There were many problems with this uh, economic model, but it's easy to note that the slaves were both exploited and excluded. Uh, you have an entire population of people that went 245 years, that's almost 10 generations, without being compensated for their work. Now, most of us would be upset if we do a little bit of overtime uh, without getting paid, or maybe we have to come in on a Saturday or a Sunday or something, you know, uh, maybe a little bit more trivial. Imagine if you were told today, nobody in your family would be paid for the next 245 years. Instead, for all your hard work and trouble, you'd receive room and board, but no income. You can't build capital that way. I think most people agree that 245 years of slavery plays a big role in economic disparities between blacks and whites. What's important to note, though, is that disparity didn't end when slavery was abolished in 1865. After the South lost the Civil War, they had to begin Southern Reconstruction. If you didn't know, war is exorbitantly expensive uh, undertaking. Losing a war is detrimentally expensive. Why do you think America tries to win every single war we fight? You want to try and build, rebuild New York City or rebuild Los Angeles or rebuild Chicago? Good luck with that. Rebuilding the South was complex, it was expensive, 
and in many ways, just downright depressing. This probably serves to fuel hate groups like the KKK, right? Uh, but that's just an aside. White people and black people were suffering. Everybody was suffering. Unemployment was through the roof. Government was almost non-existent. The South needed a way to accelerate the rebound. Keeping the Negroes in their place would also be a nice plus. This set the stage for black codes as well as convict leasing, which would prove to be two key features of Southern Reconstruction. Convict leasing is exactly what it sounds like. Uh, keep in mind, when you lose a war, a lot of what uh, was there previously has been destroyed in the process of fighting. Sherman's March to Sea is a great example. General Sherman captured the city of Atlanta and destroyed and burned much of what he came across in his march to the eastern uh, coast of Georgia. While prisons got destroyed too. So you have crippling poverty, a little government intervention, and an increased period of lawlessness. This was both fronts. But upon closer examination of the 13th Amendment, which Lincoln approved after the Emancipation Proclamation, there was actually some hope. The 13th Amendment prohibit, prohibited slavery and involuntary servitude, but there was one notable exception. Convicts. Yes, you're allowed to make prisoners work for free. That's still true today, actually. The implication was simple. If I could show you're a criminal, air quotes on criminal, I could have you arrested and thrown in prison. After that, the state could use the convict leasing system to rent you out to a business at a very modest price. Now that business benefited because they probably had mills and factories and other things that needed to be rebuilt anyway, and now they can do it on a paper thin budget. Now the state government benefited because prisons were destroyed during the war. So they didn't really have a place for the criminals anyway. And the corporations leasing the convicts would provide room and board, food and lodging, in other words. Additionally, the extra money that the state brought in through convict leasing probably helped with the government budget too. After all, if we're going to rebuild the South, we'll need some cash flow. So there was a plan in place. The only thing they needed now were criminals. They needed convicts. Enter black codes. Laws passed by southern states to, one, limit the rights of newly freed slaves, as well as, two, severely punish them for previously minor uh, criminal offenses. Loitering, which is another word for idleness, breaking curfew, vagrancy, which is another word for homelessness, not carrying proof of employment, with laws like these, the southern states would have their convicts in no time. And you guessed, they were almost exclusively black people. 90% of the least convicts were black. Presumably people who were just freed as slaves a few years back. Goes without saying that the system that provided these convicts was incredibly crooked. The white officers that arrested them the white jury that passed their verdict, uh, the white judges that gave the sentences, there are probably some parallels to today as well. The 13th Amendment still reads exactly the same, after all. But let's do one topic at a time. 
In essence, though, convict leasing was preserved for decades because of the collusion of law enforcement, judges, the prosecution, and, of course, the corporations that benefited from it all. To make this point another way, convict leasing served to become the new institution of slavery, replacing the plantation-based model or the plantation-based system prior to the Civil War. In fact, in some ways, experts believe it was worse. During slavery, slave masters could beat the trash out of their slaves, but at the end of the day, they paid for the slave, and the slave is their property. You at least need to try and make sure your slave stays alive. It represents a capital investment, like a factory or like a tractor or something. Well, when you rent something, you don't treat it the same way you do as when you own it. Think of renting a condo versus buying that same condo. In some ways, businesses treated the convicts they rented even worse than slave masters would treat their slaves because the incentives were different i.e. renting versus owning. So much like in the case with slavery, America moved forward and black people were left behind. Convict leasing really took off after the Civil War ended, but it was practiced as early as 1844. And it lasted from 1844 until about 1928. In essence, you could probably just tack on an extra 50 years to our account of how long slavery lasted. Um, albeit, I suspect America didn't have as many leased convicts as we did former slaves because we had well over 3 million slaves. So we have 245 years of slavery, which means zero income for black people, plus 50 years of prisoner uh, or, or convict leasing where there was a clear agenda to criminalize and oppress blacks, including but not limited to pay for their work. In other words, zero income. Now, coincidentally, or not so coincidentally, around the same time uh, convict leasing ended, in 1933, America established the Federal Housing Administration with the National Housing Act of 1934. This produced more federal involvement by the government in the matter of U.S. housing. But it also resulted in blacks being excluded or discriminated against in the financial markets, particularly in the form of mortgages and business loans. By the way, that's not an opinion. That's a fact. Yes, so you have a community of people that you forced to work for 300 years, that's 245 years in the form of slavery, plus an additional 50 years in the form of convict leasing, with little to no pay. You trap them in the lower class, by restricting opportunities to accrue education or receive professional training, and you lock them out of the American dream. And to add to the struggle, you made sure they had little to no access to financial services. So while other people, white people, are borrowing money to purchase homes, start risky business undertakings, or just make key financial investments as America was being built, the opportunity was not extended to black people. I mean, you don't have to be an economist or a sociologist or a policy expert to see this is an absolute train wreck. This is 300 years of little to no income, not to mention the disrupting effect of separating married men from their families when you wrongfully imprison them. 
And then we exacerbate it with discriminatory lending practices, including no lending at all. We have to tie this into segregation, though. There are two critical things the Federal Housing Administration did. One, they viewed approving loans in black communities as riskier than providing loans in white neighborhoods. As a result, if you have too, uh, too many black people in your neighborhood, good luck trying to get a loan. Also, if you're a middle-income black, you're probably less likely to be approved for a loan than a low-income white. In essence, race was a huge part of the criteria that underwriters used to evaluate, air quotes, risk. So that's number one. The second thing the Federal Housing Administration did is they regularly engaged in predatory lending. Why don't you borrow money from loan sharks? Did you ever borrow $10,000 from the Russian mob? Of course not. In general, you see these as illegitimate loans. They'll probably come with unreasonable stipulations and much, much higher interest rates. Well, the Federal, the federal Housing Administration more or less endorsed and recommended that banks engage in these activities for black borrowers. Sure, charge them ridiculously high interest rates. Draft absurd contracts. It's all good in the hood, fam. The predatory lending I described above, redlining, was practiced from 1934 through 1968 until the Fair uh, Housing Act was passed. Redlining is still a very ambiguous topic and there's still a lot of uh, research done in this area for exactly that reason. This stuff still happens today. It just takes new forms. For 34 years, America attempted to lock black people out of the American dream by refusing to provide them fair and traditional financial services. Couple that with 245 years of slavery, plus another 50 years of prisoner leasing or convict leasing, amounting to 300 years of oppression and little to no pay for work. This is a financial disaster. And I didn't even get uh, into Jim Crow, a more elaborate extension of black codes practiced throughout the 1900s. I won't, but you should read about that too. Again, it all ties together. We're talking about social structures and how they affect finance. Okay, so I know I've been a little bit long-winded and it's the end of the post and I haven't even talked about segregation yet. But didn't I though? The fact is, everything I highlighted up until this point situates perfectly into our discussion on segregation. In America, a huge part of where you live is what you can afford to pay. And for 300 years, black people in America weren't paid anything or they were paid very, very little. While our white counterparts during that time were pursuing the American dream at the expense of those at the very, very bottom. After that, even when blacks achieve middle-class status and are trying to buy a new home in a different community with more white people, you basically make it prohibitively difficult for them to do so. Uh, you don't want them. Instead, you prefer they stay on the other side of town with all the other black people. As for you, once you get out of your rut and you get back on your feet, you'll buy a home as soon as you can and join other whites pursuing the American dream on the opposite side of town. Middle income and upper income black neighborhoods are almost non-existent. Heck, we didn't even have access to traditional and fair financial services until almost 1970. That's less than 50 years ago. 
As for most white Americans, they've had access to that since the foundation of this country was laid. They've been pursuing the American dream since the birth of America. Black people have been pursuing the American dream for less than 50 years. My point, cut us some slack. There is an element of individual responsibility. Certainly we can't put this on other people, but I think America has to take responsibility for this as well. For 350 years, from 1967 when the Civil Rights Act was passed, uh, I think it might be 1966 actually, uh, all the way back to the birth of our nation, blacks in America were viewed as inferior to whites. It's one of the reasons we were pushed to undesirable neighborhoods and isolated to certain parts of town, presumably so you interact with us less. 350 years is a long, long time. I think America today is in place uh, is in a place where they're uh, more interested in integrating and being inclusive. But in order for that to happen, uh, you'll have to deal with the effects of 350 years of exclusion and discrimination and mistreatment. And unfortunately, there's no easy way to approach that. I know this post was a lot more historic, but I think part three will be a bit more anecdotal. And I'll be talking about uh, perceptions of segregation today. But until then, you can talk to me about residential segregation.